time for another Easton podcast. Hi, I'm George Tekmachev here with Steve the Big Guy Anderson. I'm going up to your neck of the woods for the no, total not eclipse. Neck of the woods. Total eclipse, man. Idaho Falls. It's like northern Utah. That is not America. Really? No. What am I missing? Uh, the whole Idaho part. Anyway, <laughs> I'm flying up there for the, you know, like I, it takes 45 minutes to fly up there, right? So I'm going to fly up there. I'm going to be on the ground for approximately an hour. I'll watch the eclipse, and about 15 minutes after the eclipse is completed, I'll check in for the return flight. It'll be awesome. Ugh, how many sky miles did this cost you? Only about 18,000 or so, I think. All right, so say 180 bucks. Roughly. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah it's just miles. Right. I've yeah, got two million of the darn things. I could, I could go to, I could go to Idaho. How many times with two million miles? Yeah, it makes sense to do that, I guess. I can go to Japan like 25 times. It's a lot of trips to Japan. Yeah, sure. Anyway, all right. So uh, uh, you're back from OPA. Yep. And um, you did well. You, you finished in the, uh, the top 10 or so. Something like that. Scored a check. Yeah, I, I haven't. I don't know yet. Let's explain what OPA is for everybody. OPA was started last year by Levi Morgan, the, the great 3D shooter. And Levi had kind of a vision for professional archery. So OPA means Organization of Professional Archers. Am I right? Yes. And I think I'm a little unclear but um, as to exactly how this works money-wise. But basically, buy-in to the tournament for a pro is $500. It's, it's um, yep. money that you're putting up there. And if you uh, finish reasonably well, you're going to get your money back at least. Yeah, yeah. If you're top, I think 40th gets 500 bucks back or something like that. Okay, so it's approximately a wash minus the cost of where you're staying and all that stuff. But by all accounts, it's a pretty well-run event. Right. But it's on rubber deer. Yeah, it's on 3D targets. Yeah. Marked 3D targets, though, right? I mean, you... Yeah, it's basically ASA rules shooting out to 80 yards, and the 12 ring is painted orange, and the 14 ring is always in play. And it's painted like a, a faint pink, so it can be difficult to see. Honestly, it can be difficult to see the orange ring on some targets. They get them in the dark, or you know, we've had fog both years come through. So it's uh, although there is an aiming indicator, it's still very much a three D game. And yet, at the same time, it's not because you're not you're not guessing the distance. Right. 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 Yep. And you don't absolutely have to know the target. You don't have to know the vagaries of where the 12 ring is. If you've got decent optics with you, I guess you can you can figure it out from that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. You don't have to uh, you don't have to have a great understanding of targets. But like I said, when that orange dot disappears, then it can be like your audio just did when you pointed your. Yeah, I was about to itch my forehead there, and I forgot which hand to do it with. Yeah, um, yeah, that orange dot disappears, then. Yeah, I hope you know the targets, you know. Well, and, and that's the challenge, I guess, plus all the stuff that goes into a field tournament. Yeah, there are you know, a few hills. Yeah, nothing. I mean, I, I you guys are out there doing cosine on like a six-degree angle. I'm like, no. I'm like, dude, your rangefinder is plenty accurate on that. Yeah. I think so. what they're worried about there is the, you know, that 14 ring is an unforgiving thing. But so, you got to play it, right, in that particular round? You can't uh, you can't shoot for par, as it were. Yeah, I mean, you got to shoot at. You got to be somewhat aggressive because someone else is, and they're going to shoot well that day. So, so uh, speaking of shooting well, our good friend 
Jesse Broadwater won the thing. Yeah, Jesse got himself in the final, didn't do anything stupid in the final, and uh, took home the win. Got a little windy out there. So, you know, a lot of guys set up with a 3D-type arrow, and um, which is fine when you're in the woods and there's no wind, but you step out on the golf course, which is where we're shooting, and uh, you get a couple – longer-ish targets and and some wind involved and uh jesse had he'd been experimenting with the hacks right before the tournament he went back to his pro tours just said he felt more comfortable with those turned out to be a good move for him all right can't complain about that and uh pretty much uh this is a pro-am kind of thing right i mean the pros all shoot together as professionals but You've also got amateurs coming into this thing. Uh, how much do they have to pay? Same same entry fee? I I honestly don't know. Yeah. So I understand that uh, it's not the same. I know that much. It's, it's, it's presumably it's less I because think it's you like don't 150 get 150 bucks or something. Because the payout's not the same. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just looking at this, put your put your uh, archery promotion hat on for a second and tell me, do you think that um, Levi's goal of making a an event where people can make a living, do you think that's being fulfilled here? Yeah, it. Uh, I mean, the payouts are are great. If you're a guy hitting the podium, it's it's awesome. Uh, you know, it's a top, like I said, top ten finish. You're gonna probably make some money. You know, it, uh, well, you know, you're not. By the time you get uh, get out there, pay for the hotel, food, all that, you probably got to finish at worst sixth, which pays $2,000, you know, and your, your investment in the entry fee, plane ticket, that's going to be probably about a thousand to 1100 total. Then you've got your hotel and, and food and all that and rental car. So, I mean, you figure your expenses for the tournament are probably around, you know, 1800, $2,000, depending on if you're splitting or, or what, but, uh, I think the you goal know, here, though, you know, what he's trying to do. By the way, I think that the winning check for Jesse was on the order of thirty thousand dollars, right? Yeah, he got thirty thousand from the tournament. Right. Yep. But I think, if I understand what Levi wants to accomplish properly here, he's hoping that eventually this is going to become something that's a what we call non-endemic, meaning that you know it's not money coming from archery manufacturers and yeah, and from the event itself, the entry fees, but from say, a third-party company out there. Let's just throw out right. a number. I don't know, McDonald's or somebody, right? Yeah, and I think that's the hope, but I, I think That's it's, a tough one. Yeah, and to be honest, you know, this is really more... Levi is some of the vision for this event, but this event is really 100%, almost 100, not 100%, but the the planning and, and event organization it kind of falls on the shoulders of Mike Pollard. I'd say Levi is more around the tournament planning the actual you know game being played but yeah mike pollard is handling he's the organizer the, per yes, se all of the sponsorship and all that that goes into it and you know but without tv and without um you know a, a, a wide following how do you get that that large sponsor to come in and go yeah i'll you know i'm bud light and i'd like to sponsor your event uh you know if i knew that i probably wouldn't be working for easton yeah good point all right well, other people are are uh, working on this problem. Uh, Hopefully, they'll succeed someday. I've been hearing it since I came in the game. You know, mm-hmm. I'm count me a cynic, but you know we're we're on an uphill battle, as I said the last podcast. 
Well, in order to shoot this event, you've decided not to go to the World Games. And um, that has taken place this past uh, uh, few days for the recurves. So let's, let's talk about the World Games a little bit here, Steve. Um, on the recurve side, uh, congratulations to Amadeo Tonelli, winner of the, uh, of the event, having beaten Brady Ellison, uh, who shot a monster score. You know, it's, it's tough to compare field scores. This was a pretty flat course, let's face it. Re- really flat. Flattest field course I've ever seen, actually. And I've shot a couple of fairly flat courses, but this one, this one was very flat. Um, so that takes a little bit of the challenge out of it. But you still have to, you still have to know your targets. You still have to have a ranging system. Brady dialed it in, and he shot a monster score. Um, and then, uh, you know, in the finals earlier today, as we record this, Amadeo was able to uh, to beat Brady. So, you know, it's the first World Games title that Amadeo has won, but he's been, you know, he's been in and out of international competition for a bit. And uh, it's a pretty big achievement for him. Italian tradition of field archery being held high. Uh, Brady, of course, has been doing very well at the at the world fields here and there. And um, on the women's side, we saw a tremendous performance from um, Lisa Unruh, who the silver medalist of the Rio Olympic Games, proving my theory that really good target shooters can also be really good field shooters if they uh, if they decide they want to try it. Or really good field shooters can also be really good at target. Actually, I think both of them are complementary to each other. I don't think being a good target shooter has anything to do with being a good field shooter. Yeah. I think if you're a good field shooter, then you're a field shooter. Okay. I yeah. started as a field shooter. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of knuckleheads can shoot target. Uh-huh. I think you have to be a little smarter to shoot field, as I sit here talking to the world field champion. <laughs> uh, by the way, that was uh, uh, Wataru Onuki of Japan who uh, who won the bronze medal uh, for the gentleman's recurve category. And he's somebody that I worked with back in uh, when he was in high school. So that... That's kind of pretty cool. cool for you, yeah. Yeah, well, I just you kind coached of him. No, you are his coach. No, no, uh, definitely not. Start the rumor. No, but I did uh, get some satisfaction out of seeing him uh, do well at this event. He's a good kid, and it's uh, the first time that um, Japan has won a field medal at the World Games, as far as I know. Which That's is pretty very cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. The, the World Games were in Akita, I think, in two thousand and I'm going to say two thousand one, and uh, you know, in Japan and. Um, I don't think got a couple of friends that did well but didn't medal at that event from Japan. So I'm pretty sure Mr. Onuki has won Japan's first field medal at the World Games, which very is cool. Uh, very cool. And uh, you know, the event itself, um, you know, like all of the World Games events, kind of doesn't get that that uh, that widespread outside of archery attention. But, you know, this is basically the number two event to the Olympic Games as far as big events. Um, you know, it's, 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 a big, it's a big deal to shoot the World Games. And uh, it's pretty cool. For the women, Naomi Folkard, um, who's just been, you know, she's just been hanging in there uh, for GBR. Um, and Lisa Unruh shot the final. And um, Lisa uh, shot a strong shot in the last... Yeah, they went to a shoot-off. Right? Yeah, last end there. And... Um, Lisa needed uh, needed a strong last arrow and got it. She shot a five, so um, you know that's that's pretty solid performance. But uh, fair play to Gnomes for for what she did. And my good friend Jessica Tomasi, uh, who has been a force, a world field champion going back to two thousand eight, and uh, Jessica is just a tremendous field shooter, pretty handy target shooter too. But uh, she really seems to have the advantage in field. She she lives in the Dolomites. 
So you got to figure that she's she's into that mountainous terrain, but she didn't have to deal with any mountainous terrain in Poland. This was a flat course. No, no, it didn't look like there was much. So, in fact, uh, both Jessica and uh, Naomi have medaled in field archery at each of the last three World Games in uh, in Kaohsiung in 2009, which our good friend Kevin Wilkie won, and in Cali in uh, 2013, and now in Reshev, Poland. So that's a pretty good record of achievement for those two ladies, uh, Jessica Tomasi and uh, Naomi Folkard from GBR. Pretty cool stuff. So any thoughts? I have no thoughts. Well, it's just one of those days you got no thoughts. <clears throat> So is there anything to do in Idaho Falls besides watch the eclipse? I do my best to never, ever go there. Well, is it that bad? I don't know. Try not to go there. Okay. <laughs> That's the other side of the state. I'm just going there because it's convenient. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, I'd pass through there. I mean, I don't want to drive four hours to see a total there's, eclipse. There's a lot to do. I could drive four hours, right? Get there, watch the eclipse for a minute and 37 seconds or whatever it's going to be and drive back. And there's going to be everybody and their mother trying to drive up there for this thing. Yeah. So I'm like, f- so yeah, you get to just avoid it. Yeah. I'm just going to fly in, mm-hmm. right? It's not a bad plan, actually. It's actually a good plan. Cause it's it kind of dogging on you before we started. Like, like you're not saving any time. You're going to waste time. I'm it, saving all kinds of time. time. Saving all kinds of time and gas. It's not about the time saved. It's about the hassle. What? Going to the airport and all that? No, no, no. The hassle of having to drive up there. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't want to do that. Drive back. And it's not a... You know, plan it's not a, an exciting drive. Plan A was to get on my motorcycle mm. and go to Jackson. Yes. Jackson, Wyoming, Jackson Hole. The problem is everybody and their mother is going to go to Jackson, and it's a two-lane road getting in there. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be a tough one. Yeah, so I'm like, all right, I, you know, I haven't seen a solar eclipse since I was a kid, so I thought, yeah, we'll just... No, it, Idaho Falls is it's it's close. nice. It's a, it's almost exactly like Salt Lake in my head. Oh. You know, very... Uh, very good place to be if you're an outdoor enthusiast. I believe one of the major outdoor publications, uh, maybe it was Field and Stream, said it's the best place to live if you're a sportsman. Really? Yep. Idaho Falls? Yeah. Huh. Well, I'm not going to see much of it. I'm going to be looking up most of the time I'm there. We've got a bunch of questions from our uh, listeners, so uh, let's just jump in. Listeners have yeah. got questions as usual. Uh, Lewis Monroe has got a very specific question for an outdoor target shooter setup with a 33 and a half inch draw shooting 57 pounds. So WA compliant. What's an optimum arrow to shoot light arrow with a light tip or light arrow with a heavier tip. How about a heavy arrow with a heavy tip? Yeah. And I, you know, I asked under there if he was talking about indoors or outdoors and he clarified, he said outdoors, outdoors. I mean, it's not about, it's more about uh, you know properly spined arrow for him, and it's going to be relatively heavy for everyone else. But at that kind of a draw length, weight is of very little concern. So I mean, comes he's, with the territory with that draw length. Yeah, he's forced into something, even like a a three hundred spine hunting arrow, uh, you know, an FMJ, or you know, if he wants to spend the scratch a, a three twenty five. X10 cut from the back would would be uh, almost stiff enough. Almost. So, specifically, what do you think he ought to do? Um, you know, it just kind of depends on his shooting level right now. If it, if it were me and I'm, let's just say, beginner or intermediate, I would look at, at one of our 300 spine hunting arrows or even a 280 spine 
say FMJ injection. Um, if he's more advanced, then you know work on uh, getting a, a setup that'll tune with a little weaker arrow like the 325X10. But All right. you're gonna want to cut it as short as possible, and maybe maybe take a pound or two away if you have to. Okay. Uh, question here from David. He says he spent last night making a set of strings for his Podium X to facilitate a cam change. A little time-consuming, but a hobby. Absolutely. It's a great great pastime to make your own strings and very satisfying when you can make your own. He says, I know Steve uses a string builder, but what about George? How many professional archers build their own strings? Uh, I feel it's an often overlooked aspect of the bow, but also people don't even try to build their own either. It's not that difficult. Attention to detail and dedication gets you there. Well, I agree, you know. Um, what about me? I, uh, boy, you name it. I started out, um, with strings that were made by Vicki Cook, the famous world champion. And, uh, Vicki used to have a string making business. So she would make strings to your, pretty much to your recipe. And then, um, I started making my own strings, uh, after I got a, a string jig, I bought an R10 string jig, which wasn't nearly stiff enough, but did the job figured out how to work around the limitations of that thing. And, you know, for quite a few years, I made my own strings. Then I started using Angel factory strings from Angel, um, especially after they introduced the uh, the Majesty string material. So I shot Angel Majesty strings for probably, I don't know, 10 years or more. And then in the last few years, I've got a coach in Kobe, Japan, who builds my strings for me. Um, and he's got a pro shop there, and he, he builds my strings. And... Uh, just lately, I've had Hoyt build me a couple of strings because they make great strings, and I had some material that I wanted to play with, but I was too lazy to send it to my coach in in Japan. So I uh, I ended up having Hoyt build those. So that tells you what you need to know. Uh, just about anything works as long as it's well made, no matter who's making it. That's my opinion. I do remember Winner's Choice, uh, the original company, uh, mm-hmm. made some recurve strings and sent them to me to try out. But because they had tied the loops the way that they're used to tying loops for compounds, they didn't work well for a recurve. Mm. So I don't know if they ever got around to to changing that. I'm not sure. So anyway, hopefully that covers that. Sarah, our friend Sarah, is asking, uh, how can you tell when it's time to replace a recurve bowstring or for a compound? Are there simply visual or performance clues or is it more like changing oil in a car? So her her point of view is, is it like visual or performance, like worn soles on a running shoe, or is it like changing oil in a car like every 15,000 miles? Those of us who don't shoot as many arrows a week as pros, maybe strings, knocks, limited lifespan stuff can last longer. Well, for sure. And the other thing, Sarah, is with modern string materials, quite frankly, on a recurve, uh, they're going to last as long as you want them to, as long as you haven't got a, you know, like a sharp edge or you don't, uh, get them hung up with some Velcro in your bow case. Usually when you kill a string, it's because of something you did to the string, not because you wore it out from actually shooting, in my opinion. Um, I know that uh, an acquaintance of mine had had a string go well over 150,000 shots documented, and the only reason he changed it out was because it just got filthy and it was kind of disgusting, you know, because you're pulling that thing into your face and mm-hmm. you're sweating and whatever. Um, so the answer is, there's two answers. One, for most people, you don't need to worry about it for, I'll put it this way. If you find it changing inexplicably, like you've got to add a bunch of twists to it and you're trying to keep up with brace height, then maybe, yeah, maybe that's when it's time to 
get rid of it or it's just filthy or fuzzy and you can't fix it with string wax that kind of thing but for sure you know if you're not shooting as many arrows a week as pros of course everything lasts longer absolutely it does so hopefully that gives you a little insight there chuck uh has written to us and um by the way he has congratulations for you steve on your outstanding season you're killing it man keep it up and poor chuck has listened to all the podcasts <laughs> says he finally caught up with all the podcasts he enjoyed podcast number 10 when we talked about shot execution and tournament shooting and um he was struggling to perform the same at tournaments as he does when he practices and he says that uh, we were right so thank you chuck i'm really glad that that worked out for you that's awesome um he says he's ready to he thinks he's ready to graduate into a set of x10s shoots a hoyt prevail 40 svx at 60 pounds 31 inches and he's looked at it on tap which is a, a program that uh, gives you arrow selection advice right as well as sight marks i guess right and um he says it's got him in a 380 spine x10 pro tour with a 100 grain point 32 and a half he'd like to use knock pins with g pin knocks bonding air veins which i think is their new vein is that right steve i don't know yeah I'm pretty I, sure it's it is. a little i've seen them i don't know if it's new or what but it's a little two inch uh shield cut type you like that idea outdoor vein um you haven't yeah, played I mean, with it yourself i gather no nope what what do you what do you use right now? You're using I use the AE Max two inch shields for those, the last five years. Those four been years. serving you pretty well. Yeah, yeah, they've always been been good to me. A little lighter, aren't they? The Max, uh, they're a little thinner. Um, not necessarily thinner. They're actually they they have uh, some structure to them, so they have uh, you know horizontal sections running the length of the vein to kind of give them a, a stiffer profile in certain sections and and whatnot okay so chuck is asking if that sounds like an appropriate setup so 380 100 grain tip 32 and a half inches yeah i think he'd be better off with a 120 for a compound guy 120 grain yeah yep. and and he, he might even be a little weak with a 380 and, and 32 and a half seems very long um you know i'm shooting about a 30 and a half inch arrow and i'm an inch and a half longer than him so so you could cut it down a bit. Yeah, he could cut it down a bit or even look at maybe a, a Pro Tour 340. So he's asking, is it better to shoot an arrow that's slightly weak or stiff? Um, there's there's lots of people that have said stuff about this, and yes, I don't know that are. any of it's true. But some people say a weaker arrow groups better at long range and a stiffer arrow groups better at close range. There's and no explanation I, yeah, for I, such a thing. I don't know why that – I think that was an archery talk uh, – myth now d wild has told me more than once that he feels that a, a stiff arrow is the way to go i think i would rather be stiff than weak and chuck says he can always adjust his shaft length or point weight point weight's not going to do a whole lot for you on this one chuck nah just run 120 on that compound yeah i think that's a good start hopefully that helps you out there and uh of course shoot us uh you know shoot us any uh, questions you have on our facebook uh which is eastern archery target eastern target archery um on 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 the old facebook there we got a question here from spencer son of our friend steve um multiple questions from young spencer who's a up-and-coming kid right he's, yeah he's pretty solid uh, yeah. cadet shooter is he is he uh, in the cadet category i think i think he's cadet maybe he's about to be a junior yeah i think you're right so uh spencer's got uh, got a few questions for us 
For example, at what point in time uh, do you really consider going to an arrow like an X10? I see a lot of younger compound kids, yes, younger than me, using and paying for an X10 with an ACC, ACE, or Carbon 1 would perform extremely well, especially at 25 to 30 meters. I know I've won tournaments in the past with an X10, so I'm a bad example. But at what point does an X10 really give you that advantage when you're Bowman or club-aged kid? I, you know, it, it, even though we're the ones making and selling them, I would say if you're, if you're shooting that 25 or 30 meter age group, do yourself a favor and look at the ACG. Yeah, or Carbon 1. Yeah. You either, know. either I, I'm, I'm always going to recommend ACG. It's, you know, 50, 60 bucks more than a Carbon so, 1. But Spencer, I'm it. not talking about your dad here, but I will tell you that some parents have a tendency to want to get, quote, the best stuff they can for their kid, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Right. The, the end of the day, it's kind of interesting how our shopping habits work and uh, maybe I've said on this before, but, you know, consumer behavior is one of my favorite subjects that I studied in college. And uh, people will change their way of thinking and their value of a dollar for different products. So, you know, let's say, like I said, ACG over carbon one, they're 50, $60 difference, whatever. Um, and you got you got to double the price to get yourself to, to an X10 level. Right. Even then, it's $200 more, right? If I said you're going to buy a new refrigerator or let, now let's go something that has a little shorter lifespan. If I said you're going to buy some hiking boots, one set was $70. The other set was $150, you know? So we've got that $80 So Merrell's versus Mindel's, for example. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of people are going to go, well, $70 hiking boots, aren't, they just aren't good enough. You know, they, I don't want my feet to hurt and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's only 80 bucks difference. I'm going to wear these for three years. And I, I'm going to spend the extra money. Then they come to Arrows and they go, oh, well, these ones. It feels like Arrows you shouldn't have to pay for, right? I think that's kind of the feeling people get. It's a, it's a hassle to pay for Arrows. And they go, Man, I don't want to spend the extra $40. Well, they're all straight and black and skinny. I mean, what's the difference? Exactly. They seem so similar. So Outwardly. People go, I mean, I, we had a guy talking to one of our people the other day. He said, you know, I, I went with the, excuse me, it was a kid at the OPA who was talking to me at the booth. He said, said I went with these arrows because they're only $120 and, and the, uh, you know, the other ones, your, your arrows – I think he was looking at X10s, and he's one of these kids who this would fit the bill for perfectly. And I said, dude, look at the ACG. Yeah, they're a little more money, but you're getting a lot more arrow for it. And, you know, that aluminum construction, et cetera, et cetera. And I truly believe that because when I was a young amateur paying for everything, I often bought what I thought was a good compromise for price and ended up buying something else again later, the buy nice, buy twice. Then I look at the rest of my life. And I go, you know what? There's everywhere else in my life. Like right now, I'm buying fly fishing stuff. Oh, no. And I'm like, here I am nitpicking. I'm starting to nitpick and go, uh, well, this this rod is, is you know, $390, and this one's $450. Oh, I'm gonna, I think I'll just get I'm like $60 on it's. And you know you can add a zero to the cost of a rod. It's possible. There's $3,000 bamboo rods out there. Oh, well, that's, uh, yeah, I'm not interested in bamboo fly fishing. I want to catch fish. So, um, 
I don't want to just throw a line in the water and, and do a, a figurative dance with the rod. I want to actually, you know, put the line in the water and try to catch something. Gotcha. But, uh, you know, I, I see myself nitpicking over that small price. But, but let's face it, on the continuum between a Zebco reel and dynamite, you're going for the higher end. Always. Yeah. It, you know, and it's it's such a small amount of money. And I say that at the risk of sounding like an a-hole because to some people, $50, $60 is a significant amount of money. But you're doing if you're doing this sport, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably an enthusiast of some sort. You're spending money going to tournaments. This is what you do. So to let a relatively small amount of money stand in the way is unbelievable to me. It's like the people, you know, this one, this one kid once uh, said, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know what to buy here, blah, blah, blah. He's from Europe. He was going to fly to Vegas for the tournament. I'm like, hold on. So you're willing to spend, you're willing to spend, I don't know, 2500 bucks coming to Vegas for the tournament. All said and done, hotel, airfare, everything else. Plus he's you know he's going to go to the outlet mall and buy a bunch of jeans and other crap while he's here. And I said, "And you're trying to skimp 10 or 15 bucks on you know something within Aero product." All right. And it's just amazing to me. Well, I'm going to I'm going to throw this out. I Spencer, if if uh, somebody is mature enough to accept using the appropriate level of uh, equipment for their performance, then it's pretty hard for anybody, even you, to outperform any of the arrows you just mentioned. You cannot outperform a carbon one at twenty-five to thirty meters. No. In other words, I think you get it, Spencer. I, I you know, absolutely, yeah. Your point's dead on. Okay, and yeah, an X10 doesn't really give you that advantage at 25 meters. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. And, you know, I designed the thing. I can tell you that compared to any other good arrow, carbon one. Now, it's important to remember, it's not just the arrow. you got to have the right knock. you got to have a knock that's durable. you got to have, you know, arrows that are straight on the back end, especially. Mm-hmm. So we're talking quality arrow to quality arrow, okay? Carbon one, ACE, ACC, X10, in the right hands will perform pretty much identically at 25 meters. Well, and there you have to also take into compound. consideration, yeah, you know, what are these arrows designed to do? And a Pro Tour is designed to shoot, I mean, it's designed to shoot 70-meter games. Now it's kind of around the 50-meter game. But it just turns, it happens to turn out that it works yeah, best. Yeah, it works. Of the available choices there. Right. But it wasn't meant for that per se, yeah. right? So... Because you, you remember, Steve, when we went to 50 meters, we started theorizing, well, now we can probably get away with a little fatter arrow. Mm-hmm. Catch a little, it didn't turn out to be the case, though. It turns no, out people, the Pro Tour is still the best performer. Exactly. So, you know, I, I will say you said something about it's not a big enough advantage. I'll say, well, the, the arrow is designed to do one thing. You know, that's be the smallest diameter, most dense, you know, appropriately dense in weight. And it does that. It's just that 25 meters – out of a the compound, small, I'm going to say that again yeah, for a reason. Yeah, the, the small advantage that would give you at 25, 30 meters is negated by the small advantage you'd get out of the di- the extra diameter yep. of an ACC or ACG. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. So, yeah, they, they both are doing what they're supposed to. It's like when we talk about colors. You know, we talk about colors here. Phil, the graphic designer guy, says, you know, people people say they don't like a color why it's doing its job right all it can do is be its color 
that arrow is designed for this, and this arrow is designed for that, and let them be what they are. But you yes, have been talking to Phil, I can tell. Yeah, if I'm if I'm shooting, if I'm shooting thirty meters, I'm even me, even me. If I was shooting a thirty meter game, I'd probably pick up an ACC. I'm just going to point out Phil's a Zen monk, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, Spencer, the reason I made the this this uh, distinction for compound versus recurve is because you are getting an advantage with an X10 at 25 meters with finger release. So yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a separate issue. Yeah, it is. It's not really answering your question, but I, Spencer, it sounds like you you already have this figured out, and you're right. right. Okay. If it didn't matter out of a recurve, people wouldn't shoot them in Vegas. True enough. Um, and Spencer's dad, our friend Steve, found it funny that the new NASP arrow color is black. Isn't Easton wanting to get away from black as a color to differentiate themselves? If so, why even offer it up for a vote in the first place? We give the people what they want. Exactly. So the, the NASP kids wanted black arrows. What the heck? Give I'm, them black. Give them black arrows. Chad uh, is asking you, Steve, what's your arrow setup for OPA? And in hindsight, would you have kept it the same? Uh, you know, I'd use the same setup I use for every outdoor event so far this season. And X-10. it looked like Jesse was shooting the same. Yeah, he shoot. shot his same pro tours. So, um, you know, if if I was shooting a OPA every weekend, I may experiment with something a little different, such as the ACC we were just talking about. But you still got that 80-yarder that you got to deal with. Yeah, and primarily, you know, most of those shots are probably, I would guess your average is around 52 or so if you threw out some outliers. So it's not a whole lot different from what I'm shooting for outdoor target in terms of distance. Um, but – the 80 yarder, even then, it's you know one. The long one was in the wind or in the open. The other one was in the trees. So, wind, yes, did play a factor on one of them. But if you make the shoot off, that's where wind is really a consideration. So, I, I would maybe set up an ACC and try that. Um, but I think I think uh, same setup I use for field and reading. Everything else still rules the day. I noticed with the uh, recurves competing at the World Games this uh, past couple of days that everybody was shooting their normal target setups, all X10s. Yeah. You yep. know, for, for field. Uh, you know, and some people will go, well, but it's field archery. You need to have a flat shooting or flatter shooting. Air. Well, you know what? There's two factors. First of all, everybody at this level has got unmarked field pretty well sussed from the standpoint of plus or minus half a yard to a yard. Second, um, you know, we have already proven time and time again, when you look indoors, you look you know, at any venue, a well-tuned setup that you're used to shooting trumps anything else. Right. You know, and, and without going to extremes, like cutting 70 grains of arrow weight, like in, say an ACC 380 or 370 with a 80-grain point versus a X10 380 with a 120-grain point, you know, that, that type of a, a window. But say you just took each of those shafts and had – 100 grain points in them as a recurve shooter now go go to where you're most likely to make a major yardage mistake that's probably or a major gauging mistake that's probably about 50 meters plus and shoot a 50 yard shot with your 47 yard mark 47 meter mark and do it with each bow and watch look for the results it's not gonna it's gonna surprise you most people will find the heavier arrow is right there with as little drop as the the lighter arrow. Yeah, because at that particular distance, they're actually catching up to each other. Yeah, they carry better. Matt is uh, our friend in Ohio. Matt is uh, 
going back to a previous question, he wants to know how does the arrow chart account for evolving design materials and engineering? Does an arrow spined for a specific poundage 10 years ago spine the same as today? Mm. Yes and no. Some, like on the compound side, we've adjusted it to feet per second ratings. Yeah. There have been a number of changes, um, Matt, and, and one of them is that we used to have a, um, shall we say, packets of category that were based on cam design, you know, the shape of yeah. the cam. You yeah. know, we're going back to the 90s here. Soft, medium. Yeah, soft, medium, and hard. And, and mm -hmm. somewhere in there, somewhere in that continuum, in theory, was your cam. And then they had to add hard cam. And then they were talking about stuff like extra hard There cam. was an extra hard for a while. Right. So now we're just going off of feet per second, uh, you know, ASA, ATA, excuse me, rating for the bow. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because it's a more objective, easy to figure out. Because here's the deal. If I tell you that um, you've got spiral cams, for example, um, that would be 10 years ago would have been a radical cam. Now it's pretty normal. Yeah. So that's changed, and that's why we're going. That's why we've done what we've done in the past of going to an actual speed rating. So yeah, yeah. you're going to find some differences from ten years ago. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say this: the arrow chart is is a good reference. If you are concerned that you have an outlier in terms of the bow or or whatever, call our tech team. They'll, you know, Zach is pretty good at helping people figure that out. And every time I've grilled him on something that I think he may not know, he's he's gotten the right answer. And he'll utilize other other factors, you know, when, when he's uh, given a recommendation to. Yeah, when you can get detailed information on a setup and you employ the proper variables, you can get a lot more of a, a close call on what arrow is needed mm -hmm. for a given setup. The chart's a starting point. Somewhere in there becomes uh, the necessity of equipment experience and you know, even the experience of what's been successful out in the field, which is why a good pro shop, yep. somebody that knows what they're doing behind a pro shop counter, or you get on the phone to a Eastern customer service rep or probably a Lancaster rep on the phone or, you know, whatever. Or one of the many, yeah, Facebook page of one of the many professional archers. Uh, yeah. Usually they're pretty good about responding. Me, not so much, but, you know, try. I think you help quite a few people, but we'll just, you know. Hey, I started a YouTube page. Oh, tell us about it. What's up? I uh, I decided, you know, I'm just going to put some videos out. So it really was the whole idea. I actually started it for non-archery-related videos and, uh, you know, home improvement stuff, uh, automobile stuff. But I haven't posted anything yet. All I've posted is a uh, quick video on how to clean your site, which – that information I derived from you, the uh, contact cleaner. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that yeah. you were able to make so use I of that. So I posted it yesterday. I have something like, I don't know, 150 subscribers now. Wow. It's really it's really taken off, yeah. You know, it's interesting that you should mention that. I yesterday was looking at, um, with Isaac over here, we were looking at World Archery's site because we were looking at different archery sites to see how many subscribers they had on their YouTube channels. World Archery, for example, is 92,000 and change. A lot of subscribers. Yeah, pretty good. And then I, it occurred to me, what's their most popular video? So, um, you know, I wasn't sure how to find that. And Isaac, he knows all that stuff. So we we went and looked. Do you happen to know what the most popular video of all of World Archery's uh, videos happens to be? It's probably one of their, like, shoot 
blindfolded or whatever videos? It's your wife shooting in the world championship in Vegas. Oh, cool. In 2012. Yeah, there was a lot of comments on that one. People saying she's hot and stuff. So I just thought that was funny because it's got well over <laughs> 1 million views. Yeah. Something like 1.2 million views. And it turned out to be the most popular video on all of World Archery's website. That's, yep, yep. I've seen it. I need that kind yeah, of You weren't married account. to her back then, were you? No. No. Didn't even know her then. Right. So there you go. You can let her know that she's the most popular figure in the history of world archery's videos she's the most popular person in the world she's in archery for sure in the world okay i'm not gonna argue because she's pretty (laughs) darn popular she definitely is one of those people who uh defines that whole better half thing when it comes to youtube that's fine all right so i know you can handle it wasn't a tough hurdle to clear you know what today is today's an anniversary an important one today's the day after my mom's birthday it's the day after your mom's birthday (laughs) And the 25th anniversary of Antonio Raboyo opening the Barcelona Olympic Games with that flaming Eastern arrow. I believe it's pronounced Barcelona. Barcelona? Fi? Yes. <laughs> we are going to the Tapas Bar in Barcelona. Yes, it's, uh, you're right. That it was, it was uh, the Castilian lisp is, is in full effect. So who has that original arrow? Well, that's an interesting story, um, which I'll talk about in a minute, but there's a reason I brought it up. Um, as we record this today, the 25th of July, now the 25th anniversary of the flaming arrow being shot to start the Olympic Games in Barcelona, which is you know, very memorable for me because I was sitting there in the stadium. I'm watching this thing, you know, uh, and it was a magnificent opening ceremony. The best thing about Many of the Olympics is the opening ceremony. The rest of the organization might not have been the best in the world, but this was one heck of a great opening ceremony. And you're sitting there, and Jim Easton's daughter, Lynn, is sitting to my left. And we're, you know, we're sitting in the kind of the cheap seats, but Jim is up in the VIP section. I turn around, and I look, and he's sitting there with Fidel Castro. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which was, I don't think it was Jim's choice, but there, that's just how things went and and Juan Antonio Samaranch is there you know at the time the president of the IOC legendary figure uh, the Marquise de Samaranch you know the king of Spain is there who I got to meet later in the week which was pretty cool Juan Carlos the king of Spain and uh, as opposed to Juan Carlos Holgado the gold medalist of Spain not king of Spain right anyway long story short uh, by the way it is interesting to meet a living person whose face is on the coins of the country that they run that that was interesting but um, where I was headed with this was because of that anniversary and because, you know, quarter century, right? We have decided to do a giveaway. So in the next few days after you hear this podcast, come to our Easton Target Archery Facebook page. We are giving away one special quiver, which was made for the U.S. Olympic team. Unfortunately, we didn't have a full Olympic team, right? We had one woman and three men. So this one quiver that we're going to give away is one of the quivers that was made for the U.S. Olympic team. It's a Stars and Stripes motif. It is an exclusive thing that was done for that team. And it is signed by the U.S. Olympic team. So uh, Mackenzie Brown and the boys signed that quiver and we are going to give that away, and the details of the giveaway and all that will be on our Facebook in the next few days. So I think that's a pretty nice item that, uh, you know, will be available. Yeah. And, you know, that uh, comes back to you, you. You had a comment. You had a question about that whole thing. 
Oh, yes. What happened to the arrow? Where's the the original arrow? So we built like a thousand of these arrows, right? (laughs) For him to, because they're like one shot. Well, yeah, they needed practice. And when the thing lands, it lands in a concrete, you know, parking lot. So pretty much one shot, you know, was, was it. And they were a special, basically a 2318 with a really long, extra long, you know, um, for obvious reasons. And, um. So this thing was shot by Antonio Raboyo, and it landed. They knew where it was going to land because Antonio was pretty accurate. You know, he was the only guy that was really 100% in terms of accomplishing the shot. And they set it up so it was going to go over the cauldron through the gas, you know, and, and out because they didn't want it potentially bouncing out of the cauldron. Spectators were right below. Right. So it's already pretty chancy shooting a freaking flaming <laughs> arrow in a stadium packed with people. With and that gigantic... Oh, my God. I don't think I breathed for about 30 seconds because it was, you know, think of what could have gone wrong. Think how scary that would be. Yeah, I think if he, yeah. Anyway, all sorts of, there's 90 ways the wheels, there's 90 ways the wheels could have come off that thing. That arrow is going over people. And it, you know, he never shot that particular arrow. And it's on fire. Right. Okay, so I'm sorry, but this, while spectacular, was scary as heck. I mean... So I'm sitting there, Lynn Easton, I think I might still have bruises. She's pounding me on the shoulder so hard, you know, from just sheer, we're all like this, right? We're all like, oh my God. Anyway, the arrow lands and it's in a circle of cops that are outside the stadium that they've cordoned off, you know, they know where it's going to, where it's going to land if everything goes well. The arrow lands and somebody picks it up and spirits it away. Well, it turns out this week we learned where it was spirited away to. The guy who worked on the special effects for the entire opening ceremony had a contract, it turns out, that gave him ownership of the arrow. So when the organizers came to him and said, hey, give us the arrow, he's like, no. <laughs> and so this guy in Madrid, he's got the arrow. Cool. The, the arrow. You know, there's plenty of um, the the ones that weren't shot. Right, And, yeah. and a number of reproductions. But uh, the actual arrow is sitting in Madrid in a, in a glass case. I in like a special it. effects, a movie special effects place. Huh. It's not in the Olympic Museum, where arguably it kind of sort of belongs. I don't know. Let the guy have it. Olympics have taken yeah. enough from enough people. Okay. So, well, in this case, we're going to be giving some stuff away. We're going to be giving back, as it were. I I know you're still you're still salty about that $50,000 worth of stuff that never came back from Rio, aren't you? That does kind of bother me. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Know. I brought it up. Yeah, our, our equipment uh, our equipment repair booth uh, never did make it back, as far as we're aware. Which a lot is, of stuff in there. There's a lot of stuff in there. Well, somebody in Brazil's got some good stuff, I guess. Yeah, it's probably sitting in, I don't know. Yeah, Anyways, we don't know. On. Anyway, moving on. So that uh, that's, that's it for that. You're headed to Yankton pretty soon. Yep, yep, head to... Uh, pass up the world game so i could shoot at this tournament here in yankton okay so yeah because NFA that's taking field. place at the same time yeah nfa field and it'll have some shooter of the year implications as yeah well. which is a big deal you and jesse pretty much in the uh it's actually the, three of us tied okay me jesse and lewis price okay so so congratulations mm-hmm. and good luck in that Appreciate order that. and um i think that should be a good good event uh whoever wins that will be very deserving, I have no doubt. 
We shall see. Yes, indeed. I don't know. I never like to say anything. What if some guy just gets super lucky? Yeah, you never know. We'll decide after the fact. Fair enough. Arm wrestling will take place immediately after for the Silver Bowl. Nah, I'm not good at that. <laughs> hey, I have an idea for Vegas this year. Have you heard my idea for Vegas? I see you playing with a, uh, a lighted knock over there. You heard I, my idea for Vegas? I haven't heard your idea. So I have an idea. I need to pitch this to Bruce. Um, but what I want to do is, you know how we got some time between when the juniors have done their shoot-off and then we have some other stuff going on and then finally the big tamale, the guys like you with the shoot-down? I'd like to stage a 70-meter dark room lighted knock yes. shoot-off and we select the participants from the previous week based on either a random draw or where they've placed the flights, something like this, right? And have them launch arrows with lighted knocks at 70 meters uh, lengthwise across the stadium. Might be cool to see. I think it would be cool to see. Yeah. I think the crowd would like seeing that. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, years ago, uh, my first uh, Atlantic City Classic was the Atlantic City Classic in Atlantic City. And it was in the same venue that they used to have the Miss America pageant. So it's a big sort of, think of a big Quonset hut looking thing, right? The interior was a big arch kind of thing. And you'd see, you'd stand and on, you could see the arrows flying and everybody's shooting aluminum arrows on a 600 round. So the aluminum arrows are flying, and it's just, it was really cool. And I think, you know, if we had lighted knocks back then, that would have really been cool. But anyway, it's just a little exhibition thing I'm thinking of maybe that would be good for Vegas. you got to have more than that. you got to have like a... Flaming arrows? Well, I don't think you need that. But, you know, for someone to shoot a, an arrow at a target, you know, people have seen enough of that by the end of the week well you have them shooting at something more exciting tannerite something <laughs> you know well maybe we'll come up with something to add to it after we have a chat about this later but uh in the meantime i would say that uh this is it's the end of the show end of the show <laughs>